don't know about you, but sometimes there are hymns we sing, and uh, I can't quite make it through some of the verses without just uh, reflecting and even in a sense choking up, and, and hymn 350 had a couple of those verses for me, and I just want to read them to you. Verse 3, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands made a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Every time I think about that question of why, why was I saved, why was I redeemed, why did I come to receive Christ and to know him, and you have to go back to God's love and his grace. Nothing in ourselves, nothing to the cross we bring. We come empty-handed and we cling to him, receiving his love and mercy. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, it has been a wonderful blessing this morning to hear your word read, to hear your songs, uh, hymns that honor your name and remind us of the goodness of you and the grace of salvation and the love that you have showed us in coming to redeem us. Now as we approach your word yet again, but to look at it in a bit more detail, to bring this wonderful chapter 6 of John to its conclusion, Lord, we know that this passage really puts before us a dividing line. It calls us to believe in you and to be redeemed and saved by you and yet it also reminds us that there are thousands who still refuse to come who would rather perish in their sin than be saved so lord jesus we pray that there would be none among us here this morning who choose to perish in their sin rather than to come to you and be saved Holy Spirit, may you work among us, convict each of us of our sin, draw us to Christ, and enable us to believe, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Palm Sunday, we talked about Psalm 118 and their cry Blessed, and you'll notice, actually, if you read Luke's account, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Luke adds, they said, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The interesting thing about his, the quoting or the quoting that they gave of the Lord Jesus in Psalm 118 is that it doesn't say, blessed is the king. They actually put the title king in there. 
the psalm says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and so these people, as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, of course, Zechariah does mention uh, the king coming in, but they quoted and they insert the title for king. And so as Jesus is entering Jerusalem and he's riding on a donkey, a donkey, mind you, being a symbol of peace, not of war, and the people spreading their cloaks on the road and waving palm branches as he drew near, they shout this about Jesus, the one who is coming into Jerusalem. And as Andrew mentioned, it was a very appropriate announcement, actually. They understood the messianic claims that Jesus was making. They understood that Jesus was saying he is the Davidic king who came to redeem his people and to bring peace. And so their announcement on Palm Sunday was actually very correct in the sense that Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom and to bring peace in heaven between God and man but what they didn't realize is that peace would not come by God dealing out wrath on his enemies. That's what they believed. And in fact, we often think that way about peace even in the world. We think about peace even with the United States and other nations in the world that we'll just pour out on all of our enemies a, a wrath or a war and we'll destroy them, and then that will create peace as we quiet down our enemies. Isn't that kind of how we think about peace in the world? Well, Jesus didn't come to establish peace by God dealing out wrath on his enemies. Jesus would come to establish peace by enduring God's wrath in his own body for the curse of the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus brings peace by taking God's wrath that is reserved for God's enemies upon himself. Peace with God is what Jesus came to bring and to offer sinners. And peace with God, if you do not have peace with God today, if you feel and know that there is a sense in which you are even now guilty before God and that you see that you are a sinner before God and you have broken his law and you have violated his law and you stand condemned, Jesus came to bring you peace and to offer you forgiveness. And the way that it comes is through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his work alone. That's the gospel message. Now, the sad truth is that for many of those who were announcing this as he entered into Jerusalem, their announcement of God's own words did not align with what they believed about Jesus. In other words, 
To be saved and redeemed, you cannot believe anything you want about Jesus. You are not permitted, I'm going to say it, you and I are not permitted to make up our own Jesus. God says, no, you cannot create your own Jesus. You cannot create your own God. You cannot create your own way to heaven. You cannot create your own rules. It is forbidden for you and I to do that. We must come to Jesus who makes himself known to us. And for those who were there as Jesus entered into Jerusalem, they rejected the peace that Jesus offered through himself. This is why when Jesus draws near and Jesus sees Jerusalem, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over you, friend, who continue to reject him and turn away from him. Jesus wants you to come and to be saved and to be redeemed. And as Jesus wept over Jerusalem, Jesus takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And just like he said to Jerusalem, he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now... They are hidden from your eyes. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have seen all that you need to see by my life and ministry. And I think that's true for every one of us here. I don't, I don't think I see anyone here this morning that has never been here before. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you have seen Jesus and heard about his life and ministry. And it was the same thing for them. They have seen Jesus says, all that they need to see. He made himself known to them. He made himself known, and they continued to misunderstand his identity, his purpose, his mission. They persisted in their unbelief, and they were still unable to see. And now Jesus says, here I am, I'm entering in, going to the cross, and these things are now completely hidden from your eyes. You cannot see. And so what we've been considering is John 6, where this unbelief and this misunderstanding in John 6 is actually just carrying over, and it will carry through all the way to the triumphal entry. And so we've been getting a glimpse of what their unbelief and misunderstanding was and how it manifested itself at that triumphal entry. And so in John 6:15, occurring before Palm Sunday, you'll remember the people wanted to exalt Jesus right then and there, did they not? They wanted to make him king even before Palm Sunday. So when Palm Sunday came, they're just manifesting the same kind of unbelief they manifested here in John 6. They wanted to make Jesus king because of what Jesus did for their earthly desires. They wanted to give him the glory of man. And that's a high honor. 
It's a high honor to be lifted up among men and to be exalted in the world. If you look at the world today, it, the people are killing each other and doing evil in order to be exalted among men. It happens all the time. People want to become president. They want to be senator. They want to be in the House of Representatives. They want to be king of this nation and king of that nation. They want to expand their lands. They want to rule people. They want to be lifted up among men because men find it as such an honor to be respected and lifted up among their peers. That's what they wanted to do with Jesus. Jesus, you can't pass this by. We want to make you king. And of course, Jesus sees it, and he sees it as an infinitely lesser glory than that which the Father had in mind for his Son. Jesus sees the glory of men, and he sees it as worthless and empty because he knows that the glory that the Father wants to give him is infinitely greater. And so Jesus withdrew from them back to the mountain because Jesus came to establish a kingdom and to receive the kind of exaltation and glory that the Father had in mind for him. He came to build the kingdom of God, to give glory to God, and to receive the glory of God. And he would do all of this when he went to the cross, offered his flesh as a substitutionary sacrifice to make atonement for sins, to save a people. Now, their unbelief of Jesus, as we've said, is not because of ignorance. They had the evidence, the miracles, they had the word of God. Jesus had visited them to bring peace, and they grumbled and disputed, not because of a lack of evidence. And so here you see two different responses to Jesus in these last verses of John 6, verses 60 to 71. Two responses to the proclamation and the revealing of Jesus to the world. The first response, which we'll look at, is unbelief, and you see it in verse 60 to 66. How you respond to Jesus is the dividing line for humanity, it determines your destiny. What we'll see is they tripped over Jesus' words in unbelief. And they specifically tripped over the cross. The other group in verses 67 to 70 that Peter is going to represent are those who truly believed and were saved. They knelt before the cross. They didn't trip over it. And so these are the two responses that Jesus engenders from all of humanity. And so verse 60 after Jesus finishes his teaching, says, when many of his disciples heard it, this is his all of his teaching, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, for he one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we see here unbelief. These disciples being referenced here in verse 60, this is important because there are disciples and disciples. That's to say there are false disciples and true disciples, right? Just like there's false faith and true faith. So just because John calls them disciples, we're going to see that they weren't true disciples. So these disciples, being referenced here in verse 60, are those who followed Jesus to the other side of the Sea of Galilee where he performed the miracle, and then they followed him back across to Capernaum where Jesus began his discourse on the bread of life in the synagogue, and no doubt there were other disciples who didn't go and see the miracle. So you have those people and these people at the synagogue and Jewish people listening to Jesus teach. All of these people wanting to be his disciples that have been following Jesus around and listening to him teach and watching him perform miracles. So they heard Jesus say about himself that he is the bread of life who's going to give his flesh for the life of the world. But that hearing did not make them true disciples. That's the point. These disciples attached themselves to Jesus as a teacher and a miracle worker. They attached themselves to Jesus as a Messiah, their own Messiah of their own making. But they were unwilling to accept him as the Son of God and Messiah who came to give his life for, on the cross for their sin. And so it is at this point where Jesus is inviting them to believe in him as Christ crucified. And it's at that point, I should say, that Jesus, that they chose to abandon Jesus. That is to say, as long as Jesus didn't talk about their sin and didn't talk about their need for a Savior, as long as Jesus didn't talk about them as being guilty before God and unable to get into heaven... They were okay with Jesus. As long as Jesus didn't, doesn't call you a sinner and point out your sin, they were okay with it. But once he did, once Jesus revealed 
their sin and his plan to pay the price for their sin, this is when they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? I pray that's none of us here this morning. When you hear God's word and when you hear what Jesus says about you and that you are a sinner and you need the forgiveness of your sin and it's only offered through him, what is your response to that? Do you recognize your sin and turn to Christ? Or is your response, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? That's another way of saying, I don't want any part of this. It's another way of saying, this is boring. It's another way of saying, this is irrelevant. It's another way of saying, this doesn't apply to me. It's, it's a way to reject Jesus and put whatever words you want to put in it and whatever excuse you want to add to it. But basically, these people came when Jesus confronted them. They came to understand that what Jesus was calling them to was much more than they anticipated. They liked being in his presence. They liked his blessings. They liked being around him. But when he laid the line down about their own sin and need for a savior, they wanted nothing to do with him. He was calling them to recognize and acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, to confess their sin, and to commit themselves to Jesus as their only hope of salvation. And if you reject Jesus as they did, they are revealing their lost estate. And it's a clear sign that they have not been born again by the Spirit and that they are still living according to the flesh. And there are so many so-called disciples of Jesus like that even in our own day. They will come to Jesus for healing they will come to Jesus for food. They will come to Jesus for drink and success and deliverance. They will come to Jesus for a good marriage. They will come to Jesus for well-behaved kids. They will come to Jesus for a good job. They will come to Jesus to feel good in the world. They will come to Jesus for just about anything. Many disciples like that. But those disciples will never come to Jesus and acknowledge their sin and acknowledge their guilt. They will never feel shame for their sin. They will never feel embarrassment 
for their sin, but they will only come to Jesus for what they can get in this life. Churches are filled with those kinds of disciples. This is what Paul faced in his own ministry to the church in Corinth. There were many in that church who claimed to be disciples, but they had all kinds of divisions in the church, right? They were manifesting that there were false disciples among them because some of these disciples, they kept pointing to other church leaders and people. And Paul tells them, was I crucified for you? Did I give my life for you? And then in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 1, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. What is preaching Christ crucified? It is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. You see, if you don't come to Jesus for whatever reason it is, the cross is ultimately that stumbling block which unbelievers trip over and they keep tripping over it because it confronts sinners with who they are. But preaching Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so Jesus, seeing and knowing their hearts, he asks them the question, do you take offense at this? Do you take offense at my claim to be from heaven and my call upon you to receive me and my sacrifice by faith? Do you take offense to this? And then he says, if you take offense at that, what I'm telling you, then he says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, what will you think when the time of my sacrifice actually comes and I'm actually lifted up on the cross and I receive the glory which was mine before? Behold, my servant shall act wisely, Isaiah says. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And so Jesus is saying, if you struggle with my metaphors and my figurative speech and my proclamation about giving flat my flesh, Jesus is saying, what are you going to say when you actually see me lifted up? And what is it they said, Andrew pointed out this morning? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. This is what they said. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Kill Jesus. This is what they said. And Jesus is telling them here, when you see me lifted up, you think that that is going to help clarify things for you? No. At the end of the day, you are still going to say, crucify him because they are in unbelief. And the, the fact of the matter is, people still today 
this still applies to them because they hear Jesus, they hear what he says, they hear he calls them to repentance and faith, and they still say when they reject him, crucify him. I want nothing to do with him. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? It's exactly what they were saying. How will they respond to a crucified Messiah? And the answer, of course, is that they will remain offended and unmoved in their unbelief unless the Holy Spirit gives them eyes to see. And this is what Jesus says in verse 63. You see it there. He says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who he would be betrayed by. So Jesus says, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He, he knew, Jesus knew, that they could not arrive at the true meaning of Jesus' words and believe in him by their own wisdom. The Spirit of God must give understanding and belief, just like Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, you must be born again. In other words, they would never come to an understanding of Jesus' true meaning by their own wisdom, which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the preaching of the cross of Christ is foolishness and folly to those who are perishing. In their own wisdom, they will not understand. Jesus says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so they were revealing their ignorance to God's truth, and they were revealing that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. God must give life. The Spirit must give life. Like in the Valley of Dry Bones, the Spirit gives life to them. And Jesus says his words are functioning in the same way. He says, the words I am speaking to you are spirit and life. Here's D.A. Carson explains it like this, and I thought it was helpful. He says, strictly speaking, the spirit does not come upon the disciples until after Jesus' ascension. But already Jesus himself is the bearer of the spirit, the one to whom God gives the spirit without limit and who therefore speaks the words of God. That is why Jesus can now say, the words I've spoken to you are spirit. That is, they are the product of the life-giving spirit and they are life. That is, Jesus' words, rightly understood and absorbed, generate life. Then he quotes from John, Jeremiah 15, 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. Just as Jeremiah looked at God's word, so Jesus is saying you are to see his words, your heart's delight and your joy. Jesus is saying my words are on par with the spirit of God. And so 
They did not believe in him and his words, and Jesus knew who they were all along. That's why he reiterates, no one can come to me unless it is granted by him by the Father. And so, in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They turned back and no longer walked with him. What about you? Do you know the time of your own visitation this morning? If you're listening to this sermon, let me speak with you for just a moment because you are hearing the gospel right now. You are hearing about Christ, and the question is, what will you do with it? You are being visited by God's word, and Jesus is telling you that he is the only way to have peace with God. He shed his blood and he died for sinners like you. Jesus shed his blood and he died for a sinner like you because he loves you. And because he wants to save you and he wants to redeem you. And so Jesus is coming and he is offering himself to you as a way to be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. And he doesn't attach any strings to it. He doesn't say that you must do this and that to earn my favor or to be forgiven. No, he actually offers it to you freely by grace. And you don't have to go through hoops and jump through things and do all kinds of things in order to receive his forgiveness. But Jesus says, simply come to me. And he says, believe on me and you will be saved and receive eternal life. That's why he came. And if that message makes sense to you, and if you understand that God is holy and that you are sinful, and if you understand that you are deserving of hell and that Christ is the sacrifice for your sins and that you must repent and believe in him, if you hear all of that right now and it all makes sense to you, then now is the time of your visitation. It means this. That when you die, and we all will die, it's appointed unto man once to die. When you die, you cannot plead ignorance. You can't. You cannot say, I never heard the gospel. You cannot come before God and say, it it wasn't clear. It didn't make sense to me. I never, I never heard it. No one told me that I could be forgiven of my sin. No one ever told me that I was a sinner. No one ever told me that the way to salvation was to repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can't claim that. Just like the people on Palm Sunday and in John 6 couldn't claim it. They could not claim ignorance because Jesus had made the gospel clear. Now is the day of your visitation. On the day of judgment, pleading ignorance will hold no weight in God's court. And so Jesus turns to you, just as he does here in this passage, he turns to the twelve after these other disciples left. He's probably in private now with them because all these other disciples left. And in this private 
matter, which God may do for you if you're not in Christ. He may take you home and ask you privately in the quietness of your own home. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Jesus knows their hearts. He knew the hearts of the false disciples, so he's not asking them for his own sake. He's asking them for their sake. He, he, he is giving them an opportunity to articulate their faith in him, to voice it. He doesn't need to hear it. That's what true faith does. It abides in Jesus and his words, and his words and Jesus abide in you. And so a true disciple has true faith, and we actually see that in Peter's confession. Because if you're sitting here right now, and you're hearing Jesus' call to come and receive him, and you're seeing this unbelief, then the question becomes, well, what does it mean for me to have faith in Jesus? What is faith in Jesus? What does it look like? What does it mean? How can I be saved? I know what unbelief looks like because I'm always living in unbelief, it seems. But how do I cross over to now saying I actually do have faith in Jesus? Well, we see a bit of that here in Peter's confession. Peter usually speaking first, jumping out and speaking, jumping out of the boat, going into the water. I mean, all this other stuff Peter does. He's always there. He's always first. But so Peter answers Jesus' question, very personal question to the 12. Do you want to go away? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter, as he's giving this confession, and we'll break this down a little bit, just understand that when he makes this confession, he doesn't fully understand everything about what's coming. You understand that, right? Peter is confessing this. He doesn't actually know everything about what Jesus is going to do. The Holy Spirit will make those things known to him. He'll reveal more fully the gospel. But at this moment, all, G all Peter really has is this, this teaching of Jesus that he is from heaven. He's the bread of life. He is the Messiah. He is the Holy One of God. And this is being presented to him, but he doesn't know that Jesus is going to die on a cross and rise again. And yet, he is giving this confession that he's believing in Jesus' words. Jesus, Peter knows the words Jesus is speaking to him are spirit and life. He knows enough to understand that Jesus is presenting himself to them as the only way to God and as the only one who has the words of eternal life. And so his faith exists, you might say, in three parts, as sometimes is defined in the Reformation. And the first part being he expresses his assent to the truth of Jesus' words. This is why he says, when Jesus says, do you want to go away as well? What is his response? 
Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter, in expressing his faith, is assenting to the truth of Jesus' words. That's the first step, in a sense. Do you assent that what you're hearing about Jesus, even today, is true? It's not made up. It's not a fairy tale. Can we agree on that? If you're hearing me, can, can we agree that what we've been reading and studying about Jesus is not a fairy tale? It actually happened. Right? Okay. We assent. Peter assents. The second thing you see is he, he not only assents, but he has a, a certain deeper knowledge now of what Jesus is saying. He assents that it's true, and he has a knowledge of it. That is, he understands the basic facts about Jesus. He knows the man, who the man Jesus is. He knows what Jesus says about himself. He knows the role that Jesus claims to play in our lives. He, he, he doesn't fully understand everything, but he knows what he has heard. He assents to it. He knows it. That's why Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and he says, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He assents to the truth of what Jesus says. He approves of those facts and his word. But then he also has a knowledge of the truth. So can you say this morning that you assent to the truth of Jesus' words, and that you know something about the gospel? Do you know the gospel and what Jesus says about himself? Then I would say, yes, you do. You assent and you know it. You know it. Does that make you saved? Does that make you a Christian? And the answer is no. Because even the demons believe they have a knowledge they assent to the truth about Jesus and they are not saved even demons can assent and know without salvation because the final part that must come with that is that you must also personally trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins you must place your faith, and your trust in him. If we leave our belief to mere approval without trusting Christ, we are no better than demons. A biblical faith in Christ must adopt the truths about Christ into your own life. You must personally trust Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your personal sins. And so this is where Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed that you are the Holy One of God.
You are the one set apart as God's very own. You are the only one who can deal effectively with my sin. That's what Peter saw in Jesus. He's greater than a prophet, greater than Moses. He is the Holy One of God who came to redeem him, a sinner. Jesus is the object of your faith. So, you know what unbelief looks like. That's what faith is. That's it. Assenting, knowing, trusting him. And Jesus calls you and me to believe. Now, real quick here. While Peter is speaking on behalf of the 12, Jesus senses that there is a bit of, I think, pride and posturing in Peter's confession. Peter thinks that he and the 12, this is a rebuke, I think, for you and me, beloved, who have come to Jesus. I think Jesus sees that Peter, in some sense, by saying this and confessing this, thinks that he's a little bit better than those fickle disciples that left. It's not unusual for the disciples to manifest that kind of pride during their time with Jesus, and Jesus has to correct them. And so you might remember the time that Peter rebukes Jesus for telling him he will not suffer and die again. Do you remember that? That pride, telling Jesus that this will never happen, and then Jesus has to rebuke Peter. Or there's the time when the disciples are arguing about who will be greatest in heaven after they all ate the Lord's Supper. They're exalting themselves, and again, Jesus has to correct them. And then there's a time where James and John wanted to call down fire upon a Samaritan village. Remember that? <laughs> and Jesus has to rebuke them. I mean, you go through the Gospels, you realize, boy, these disciples are just like you and me. They are proud. They're lifted up. They, they make mistakes. And I think Jesus sees in Peter, he sees a little bit of that again. And he lovingly wants to correct Peter here. Peter, you need to understand something. You need to see yourself rightly here, Peter. Peter and the twelve are not doing Jesus any favors by staying with him. And so Jesus says to him in verse 70, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? In other words, remember, Peter, that it was not you choosing me in your wisdom and according to your flesh, but it was me that chose you, the twelve. And even in my choosing you, twelve, I know that there is one among you that does not have true faith in me. And Jesus says he is, in fact, a devil. He is an accuser and a slanderer, and he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so I think for us, beloved, who have believed, I think it's important for us to remember that Satan is always lurking and seeking to use our pride against us, and we must always remember that it is the sovereign grace of Jesus Christ alone that brought us to saving faith.
And it's the sovereign grace of Christ alone that will keep us believing in Jesus until the end. It is all God's work from beginning to end. And Jesus reminds Peter and us that it is his work. So lay aside your self-importance, your wisdom, and your strength, and put your heart and your mind and entrust them to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone. Belief and unbelief, where are you this morning, beloved? I pray you're believing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the testimony that we have received here. And in, in the close of this chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, which has been such a, a marvelous and powerful study to go through, to hear about the bread of life and what Christ has offered in giving himself for our sin. And Lord, we pray uh, that there would be no one unbelieving among us. We pray, O oh God, that, that all of our eyes and our hearts and minds would be open and that, that hearts would turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for giving us eyes to see for those of us who believe, for working in us a work of redemption that we could never do on our own. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sin. Thank you for being our King and our Savior and our Lord. Thank you for loving us in such a, a gentle and a patient way. Thank you for correcting us where we need to be corrected and for, uh, for moving us uh, to a greater and greater image of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for the work you began in us and thank you for the work you will finish in us. And thank you that you are coming again to bring us home and to raise us again from the dead. Thank you for the glory that awaits us and the glory that we will see. Uh, thank you for the place that you have prepared for us, the, the heavenly estate that we long to be in. Thank you for your promises and thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being who you are and for saving us. We give you this thanks in your name.